Hey guys, Andrew here. Thank you for coming along on this podcast journey. Real quick, before we get started in this episode, I've got to ask you for a favor. If you would take a moment and give us a rating or a review wherever you find this podcast, that would be enormously helpful in us getting this word out and having a dialogue uh, about, about coaching inside the box with a greater number of people. Also, my challenge this week is share this podcast with one person. You may not know it, but we have a YouTube channel. And on our YouTube channel, we have a ton of really good content, small excerpts, maybe 45 seconds to a minute and a half long from our episodes, also the full-length podcast. We have a Twitter page that has a ton of these small, short, shareable content that you can hit retweet or like on your Twitter. And we have Facebook and Instagram also that you can share on your own social media platform. If you haven't found us on Facebook, search Coaching Inside the box. If you haven't found us on Twitter, search at coach in the box. If you haven't found us on Instagram, search coaching inside the box. And of course, YouTube search coaching inside the box. Thanks. And let's get started with the episode today. Coaching inside the box, a youth soccer coaching podcast, a Brit, a Brazilian and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to episode seven of Coaching Inside the Box. Guys, we are excited as ever to be here today and glad that you're coming along with us for this wild ride. Today's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more free-flowing, maybe a bit of samba in the air. Um, Maybe we'll be flying by the seat of our pants. And I say this because... We know this 2v2 content really well. We're going to be talking about the value of 2v2s that we use from a coaching methodology perspective. We're going to talk about the genesis of where 2v2s came from. Um, and genuinely, I, I, mean, uh, I mean this when I say where 2v2s came from for us as coaches is literally the best story I've ever heard ever across any genre. The story is fantastic. And Andy is a wonderful storyteller um, on that front. Um, but let's... Let me let me build up to get there, right? So uh, we've talked so far on this this podcast on this journey about uh, our coaching methodology and the approach that we take to teaching the game and helping kids to become creative soccer players and 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 brave risk taking soccer players that eventually make them leaders both on the field and off the field. Um, and we do that through you know the initial stage of of skill learning where we teach technique and we really drill down into technique. And I think that was episode one where we talked about maestro and our approach to teaching technique from a slow perspective. And then episode three or four, somewhere in there, we moved into 1v1s. We talked about 1v, I think it was maybe episode five, 1v1s done right, I I think was the the title of that that episode. We talk about, you know, in a crowd and and, and encouraging players to go for it and keeping score and all of those things. And really from 1v1s, we we moved to 2v2s. But what's most interesting, I started playing for Andy uh, in 1989. That was my first year playing for Andy. And we did a lot of skill learning. We did a lot of work in technique. We did a lot of 1v1s. We never did 2v2s. And I can say now, uh, um, and for the last 20 years, 2v2s has been ever present as a, as a core tenant of, of our club's coaching philosophy. Um, but it didn't start out that way. Andy, you tell this story great, and, 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 I, and, and I love it. We talk about Ghana, Ghana Manchester United, and, and the Manchester United Football Festival in 1993, was it? 1993, yeah. So, so how did you come across the idea of doing 2v2s? Or maybe a better question is, why did you see a need um, uh, to add another wrinkle to the coaching curriculum uh, that you were employing as you were coaching us um, what, was, that, was there a need from us as players? Were we, doing, were we missing a, a, an important ingredient, I guess I should ask? Well, none of the other players were missing an important ingredient. Only you. Um, <laughs> you know, but that's another story. Um, I had the special ability to beat four players and dribble out of bounds. And, and, and before... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> or shooting the ball over the crossbar. I with that. Um, but how come did, it took five, six weeks before you gave me a T-shirt? You know, oh yeah, that's, that's all I got for this doing these podcasts every week. You know, talk about cheap. Good and, point, Andy. I'm glad you brought it up. Those of you guys that are listening and not watching us on YouTube right now, you'll see that Andy and I are in maxing, matching T-shirts, and it has the the logo of Coaching Inside the Box, our podcast. Um, and I'll, I'll mention it now. We're going to do a giveaway. If you share any of our content on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, we'll throw your name in the hat, and we'll pick a few of those names out, and we'll uh, give you a free T-shirt. I think I got to get into the 
hat because I didn't get a t-shirt. You did too. It was on your desk. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. You guys didn't apparently, tell me that I should wear that today. <laughs> when, when your country gets COVID-19 under control like we have, we'll, <laughs> we'll give you a t-shirt. I'm going to walk around shirtless for the rest of my life, I guess. <laughs> All right. Back to Ghana, Andy. Manchester United Football Festival, 1993. There was a missing ingredient. We didn't quite have something. And Ghana gave you the idea on how we get it. The missing agreement be, being what? Well, you know, and, and, and let's tell the story because, yeah. you know, the story highlights, you know, all the ingredients that we were missing in a way that uh, I don't think anything else can. So in 1993, I decided to take my 7980 team over to Britain on tour in the summer. And we entered two, uh, you know, tournaments, big competitions. Uh, we entered the Arsenal Cup, which we won, and we entered the, uh, the Umbro Foot Football Festival, um, and we got eliminated by a team from Belfast, Northern Ireland, which is another interesting story because my kids were scared <laughs> of these Irish kids. I was scared of these Northern Irish kids. <laughs> they, they were, they, you know, right from the start, they were cussing in my kids' ears and threatening to break their legs and, you know, <laughs> then coming over to me and complaining and... and you know, it was just an education. Um, you know, these kids were really tough, you know, and they eked out a 1-0 victory that put us out of the tournament and, you know, taught my, you know, my um, sweet little Johnson County boys from, from Kansas City, you know, what it was like to play down and dirty blue collar uh, soccer. But I digress. Um, so we're in Manchester and um, the... The highlight of the tournament was that the Ghanaian national teams, the under 20, sorry, the under 19 and the under 17 Ghanaian national teams um, had been invited to Manchester as part of a tour. And this was on the heels of the under 17s appearing in the Youth World Cup. And they had just finished second in 1993 in the Youth World Cup, the, the, the Ghanaian under 17 national team. And, uh, and so they had a couple of exhibition games and, and there was... It was, there was thousands at these games because it was this huge football festival and everybody made a point to come out and see the Ghanaians versus the, at the time, current FA Youth Cup champions, the Manchester United and the 19s, which is an incredible story in itself because... What era? This is 93. Mm -hmm. This has got to be the golden era for Manchester United, right? Oh, yeah. It was the Golden Boys. Yeah. And... At the time, of course, we didn't realize what we were watching. We were watching the, and I went back, you know, with Wikipedia being so so wonderful a resource. Uh, I went back as I was researching this in in the the first decade of the two thousands, and looked up the actual players that played in that game against the Ghanaians and David Beckham, Paul Scholes, the Neville brothers. Uh, Robbie Savage, uh, Ryan Giggs, you know, I mean, they had a fantastic team. The best name in English soccer of all time, Nicky Butt. What? <laughs> Nicky Butt was in there. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a sweet name, Fleet? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> Good job it was Nicky, not Licky. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but, but, you know, it, this was a fantastic group of players that the Ghanaians were playing against. And uh, the, the Ghanaians national team, they were playing two years up against the Manchester United under-19s. And, uh, and so this, you know, second best team in the world were playing against the, you know, this, this youth team that just won the FA Youth Cup. And it, it was so one-sided, it was ridiculous. The Ghanaians tore Manchester United apart. You know, they had the ability to bring the ball down from the air without looking at it, you know, and, and you know, just scanning the field. They seemed to have so much time on the ball, even when they were highly pressured, you know, they, they just seemed so smooth and in control, you know, and it, it was as though... This was where they belonged, you know, and, and it was really weird watching it because I'd never seen quite so much domination against obviously a very good English youth team. And it was kind of embarrassing for me because, you know, I'm English and, you know, here you've got these wonderful, you know, you know, youth soccer players out of Ghana tearing apart, you know, this what should have been, you know, the cream of the crop, you know, in the world at the youth level. And, you know, they're two years younger and they're killing you know, the, you know, the, the Golden Boys. Uh, and we didn't know it was the Golden Boys at the time, but we knew it was the Manchester United FA Youth Cup winning team. Sure. You know, because that was in all the programs. And, uh, and so, so uh, I was, you know, shocked in a pleasant way. And uh, after the game, I went up to the coaches and I said, um, are you going to be practicing while you're here? Because, you know, I want to come and watch a practice and, and, and see what magical things you do to make your players this good. 
And they said, yeah, we're going to be practicing here and tomorrow morning at this time. And, you know, come on down and, you know, you, you can watch and we can talk. And, and coaches I've found all over the world are willing to share, sure. like, like I am, you know, their quote-unquote secrets. And, uh, and these guys were fantastic at, at, you know, communicating what they did. It was me that was too stupid to really get it. And that's one of the interesting things because I was a little late to the practice. And as I walked up, I saw something I'd never seen before. And um, this is how I relate it. You know, there's been places in my life that, you know, that I've been thrust into where I felt extremely uncomfortable because I was out of place. And one time, you know, I moved to Kansas City and I lived in uh, the city for a while. And then we decided to, to build and, and, and move to the country. And my wife decided she wanted to be involved in the 4-H club and she wanted to raise you know, hens, chickens, and get eggs, fresh eggs on a daily basis. So uh, I built a hen coop, you know, and, and it, we went along to the 4-H chicken club with, you know, the members of the chicken club. And I walked into the room and in those days, you know, the soccer shorts were pretty short, you know, and didn't hide a lot, you know. And I, I walk into this room with... A bunch of farmers, you know, in, in overalls and, you know, the, the members of the chicken club were the farmers and their kids, you know, and um, the best way I can put it is, you know, I was walking into um, this weird event that, that and I, I must have looked to them like somebody out of the bar on Star Wars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with, with these massive heads and, you know, and just, you know, completely weird beings. That was me walking into their inner sanctum. And, uh, and, and that, you know, to, to get back to the story, that was me walking into the Ghanaian practice because I walked into this practice and I felt like this is wrong. This is, you know, this made my skin crawl, you know, because they had, and this is why, they had both of their squads, about 50 players in one penalty area playing not from goal to restrain an arc, playing across the penalty area into small clone, cone goals, you know, and so... You know, and, and I looked at this and it was just bedlam. But they didn't just have, you know, like 25 on 25. They had multiple two versus two games going at the same time. Everybody was playing two versus two. Were guys in bibs? How did they know who was on their team? No, they had no bibs. They had no identification. And that was part of their, their approach was, you know, put a bib on somebody, you play to a color. You know, keep everybody, you know, in the same shirt so they all look the same. People have to communicate. You know, they have to, have to, have to talk. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to be all the time, you know, telling their teammates they're there and they're helping them out. And, you know, I'm here, give me the ball. No, 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 yes, now. You know, that type of stuff. And so it, it actually fostered the communication that's vital at the highest level. Sure. You know, and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm sat down, I'm watching this, and I went from feeling really, really awkward, uneasy, out of place, to open-mouthed, jaw-dropping, you know, in England we have a great word that, that I think just encapsulates what I felt. I was gobsmacked, and gobsmacked is... And, you know, Shot and, of the floor. Yeah, I was absolutely astounded by what I was seeing. I was seeing um, these incredible, tiny, small-space overlaps wall passes, double passes, you know, and, and all of the, you know, the, the, the tactics that you use in and around a penalty area when the opponents are parking the bus, you know, to penetrate, I was seeing this again and again and again, and Maradona turns and Cruyff turns and, you know, and all these fantastic moves, you know, and it was seamless on occasion, you know, and I'm looking at this and, and I'm like, oh, I get it now, you know, I can see why they thrashed this Manchester United FA Youth Club team, you know, because, you know, they're just absolutely incredible in not just tight spaces, but ridiculously tight, unbelievably tight spaces. Mm -hmm. And and so um, after the practice session was over, you know, I go over to the coaches and I said, that was incredible. That was absolutely marvelous. And and this is me, a product of, of um, the, the stupid. Wait, uh, was the entire session this? Yeah, that's the, all they did. That's all they did. That's all they did. They took some breaks for water, sure. water and stuff, yeah. but it's all they did. And and uh, you know, and so you know, I'm I'm the English idiot. You know, I I go over and I've been in now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have to stay in abuse. I've been abused by experts in my life. You know, not amateurs. Um, but uh, you know, so um, I'm with these Ghanaian coaches, and I say so. 
How did you set up your practices to teach them how to do this? I mean, let's talk about the English idiot. What a stupid question. And uh, they're looking at me and, and I said, so what are you doing practices, you know, to, to make them able to do this? And they look at me and they said, we do this. And I said, no, you're not understanding me. You know, uh, you know presuming that I know better, you know, being as I'm from England and we invented the game and the English game is better than anybody else's game, you know, which is completely untrue, isn't it? And, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I said, no, how do you set up your cones? How do you set up your drills? <laughs> you know, they're looking at me like, you know, you're really stupid. And I must have asked this same question four or five different ways until I finally said to them, I'm being really stupid, aren't I? Because <laughs> they kept saying we do this. And I, I said, you know, so you keep saying you do this. So this is what you do, right? This is what you, <laughs> as, as a core method in your practices. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> do you need a translator? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, this is the hubris of honest, honestly, of, of, of English coaches. You know, we think that we're better than, than, other coaches from around the world and you know what we're not you know but we think we are but it's not even just i mean that's a piece of it right and one that I, I like to to poke often but it's more than just that right like your first instinct was to ask what drills to you do you do so guys can play in tight spaces like that and they said oh we just play in tight spaces like there is no drill we just play in tight spaces. Like that is it. But we as coaches so often think we have to artificially, you know, you know, create environments, game situations, game situations rather than just playing games. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, I think that's actually, there's a lesson in that for all of us as coaches. Yeah. That's the beautiful, beautiful thing about soccer. The game situation will present itself in a practice, every, everything like soccer is probably one of the most, if not the most diverse game ball comes from any ways you use multiple parts of your body except your hands except for the goalie obviously and like every situation will present itself so you don't need to manufacture any situation if you put uh kids to play in tight spaces you know in a crowd every single situation is going to present itself so the game is the best teacher exactly. and and what i you know i was talking to parents recently that were joining the club through the tryout process and uh I was showing him our indoor facility in Lee Summit where we train all the time and the spaces are really tight. And I was explaining 1v1s and 2v2s, which we'll continue to, to talk about today. And, uh, and I said, you know, it's funny when you train all the time in small spaces and then you go play a game on a big field, it translates. It translates really well. When you practice all the time on a big field and, and with a lot of space, when the game gets tight, and the defense does a good job of, of, of constricting space, it doesn't translate well. And so we train only in tight spaces and it translates fantastic to the game situation. So, so let me get back to the, the, the Ghana story um, because it, you know, this wasn't the only time I put my foot in my mouth. Because <laughs> you know, I, I then said to the coaches, okay, I get it, this is what you do. How did you train your players to do these moves? You know, <laughs> The Maradonas, the Cruyffs. Yeah, yeah, all these fantastic skills. You know, and, and uh, they looked at me and they said, we didn't. <laughs> and, you know, and I literally, you know, you, you know, I had you and Kyle and, you know, people that are still in our organization today, you know, when you guys were four and five and six and, and I trained you in the moves. So I was in this, you know, this mode of you have to train the moves, which I still believe there's sure. better moves and you can train the moves. But these guys said, you know, we didn't train the moves with the national team. All we did is we put the word out all over Ghana to our contacts in all the towns and villages, you know, the furthest flung cities in Ghana, towns in Ghana, and we said, send us your most gifted players. And they already had moves, you know. And, and so, you know, and this is, a, you know, a flipping paradigm to me because in England, nobody taught us moves. Nobody even tried moves when mm. we were growing up. It was one of those things that, you know, until kids started seeing moves on YouTube and places like that, you know, coaches that actually taught moves were few and far between. You know, they were rare big diamonds, you know. And, and, and so, you know, the fact that these, these Ghanaians could go out and, and, you know, get these skillful players from all over Ghana to, and, and bring them into the national camp talks about the culture in Ghana. Now, this is, it gets really interesting from here because as it happened, my father was stationed in Ghana during the Second World War. 
And I remember vividly him talking about how they would play against, you know, the natives, you know, and um, he talked about this one absolute ball wizard. He said they were all way more skillful than the British players. He said, but there was this one absolute ball wizard. And he said every one of the, you know, the Ghanaians played barefooted. You know, like you talked about playing in Brazil growing up. And he said they had one kid and the, the Brits, this was the Second World War, and the Brits christened this young fella Spitfire, you know, which is the, the fighter plane, you know, that brought down, you know, the Messerschmitts in, in the Battle of Britain and saved Britain from being, you know, a, a Nazi-occupied country, at least for the duration of the war, possibly saved the whole of Europe. Well, this, this kid, Spitfire, Spitfire, was unbelievable. And, you know, my dad said, all we could try and do was kick him. And we couldn't even kick him. He was so kick quick. <laughs> you know, he, he just knew when somebody was going to kick him. And, you know, and, and the other thing was, all these British guys are wearing their football boots. And back in the day, those things had big, heavy toes on them. And, you know, they were leg breakers, you know. And so they're wearing their football boots. Spitfire's barefooted. <laughs> and, you know, he's running rings around these guys because they've got these big old clogs on, you know. And, you know, it's so difficult to play. And so Ghana had this decades-old philosophy, you know, just ethos, not even a philosophy. They, I don't think they'd actually thought about it. Their ethos was like Philippe always describes about Brazil. It was about being really, really skillful. So, so getting back to my experience with the coaches and then elaborating on that somewhat, because this is really intriguing as well, um, you know, the coaches told me how they did it. So they got these kids from all over Ghana, you know, they brought them in to the national camp and gradually over a period of three years, they winnowed that group down to the best 24, you know, and these kids were the best athletes amongst the hundreds they had brought in for camp, you know, but they had this natural creativity that had grown up in their ethos, much in the same way as the Brazilian natural creativity that is built in the favelas. This had been built in the Ghanaian streets you know, in their small towns and their villages, just playing street soccer. No facilities, just a ball. Unstructured play. Unstructured play. Ball, you know, rags, whatever they could make a ball out Mm of, you know, and they'd built that skill through that type of environment. Now, why should we be really, really intrigued by this this Ghanaian story? And this is where it gets really freaky. So it wasn't just a one-off beating the Golden Boys scenario. That, that Ghanaia, you know, did in, in 1993 after coming second in the World Cup. Because, you know, as I started researching this, you know, this phenomenon that changed my whole perspective on how to train my players, I, I looked back in Wikipedia. I found out that they'd played against the Golden Boys that day. But what I also found out when I was looking back is that in the decade of the 90s, the Ghanaians achieved something that has never, ever even come close to being achieved since. And that was that in 1991, two years before I saw them play, with a completely different squad, and remember, at under 17, the World Cup is held every two years, not every four years. So with a completely different squad in 1991, and I looked at all the different squads every two years, all the different rosters, to see if there was anybody that carried over. Not one player carried over from 1991 which is when they won the Youth World Cup, to 1993, which is when they were runners-up, to 1995, which is when they won it again, to 1997, where they were runners-up again. Now, I don't know what happened, but in 1999, they had a terrible performance. They dropped off of the map, and they finished third. (laughs) Awful, you know, but obviously I'm being facetious. In the decade of the 90s, in eight years... 91 to 99, they finished first twice, second twice, and third once. That hasn't, even the great Brazilian team from 58 to 70, that was a 12-year span. And Pelé played in the first one and played in the last one. So there was some repeat, you know, and with Ghana, it, it wasn't repeated at all. No player repeated. So it had to be what? The system. It's a system. It had to be the environment, it had to be the culture, it had to be the system, it had to be what they did. Now, interestingly enough, after the 90s, and we, we definitely covered this with regard to Ashington, in Ghana, they started to develop a little later than the Western world, 
you know, their road system, you know, and the the alleyways, the roads that they played in growing up, you know, prior to the 90s, disappeared like they did in Britain, in Ashington. And so the Ghanaian dominance largely after that decade started slipping away. And we can relate this again to, you know, the motor car, you know, and Philippe has talked about the favelas and how, you know, the, the favelas haven't been impacted by motor cars. Well, you tell it, Philippe. Yeah, I mean, the favelas, for example, in Rio, they're in the mountains and up there, uh, it gets too crowded. The streets are very, very, very narrow because people are just building houses on top of houses. So there are not enough cars that, you know, will create traffic or will stop the kids from playing soccer. So, um, yeah, the... That part didn't really affect Brazil. Other stuff did, but I think that part of the urbanization hurting the street soccer uh, culture, I think that didn't happen to Brazil as much as it did across the world. So coming back to Ghana, though, in 2v2s, right? Um, in, you know, the, I've heard you tell the story, and we've talked about it in length, and, and so I'm very familiar with it. Me and my teammates and the other teams that you trained, we were all really, really good deceptive dribblers. In 1993, when you were at the, uh, the, the football festival in Manchester, you know, I was back at home in Kansas City, and I could take players on, and all my team, teammates could. But you had said, you've said before, that you were struggling to understand or to figure out the best, most efficient way to take these really dynamic, deceptive dribblers, these ball hogs, and make them or, or help them fit into a team ga- team way into a team game without taking away their creativity and their ability to to to, to be a, a special technically on the ball, and 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 that you seeing Ghana do it through the the, the crowded two v two penalty box was when the light bulb switched on for you. And and previous to that, I don't know that we did much two v twos or any. Post that. Um, it became a staple of of our club's philosophy. Is that is that is that a fair representation of that missing ingredient? Yeah, and and this was a um, you know an epiphany. It was a revelation for me because I, I was searching. You know, I had you know determined I was going to develop, as you just mentioned, great dribblers and goal scorers. And so you guys and the other teams, because I was coaching seven and eight teams simultaneously at one time, because that's all I did for my income to feed the family. And, uh, and so all of the players that were playing for me, uh, because we focused so hard on their finishing ability and on their deceptive dribbling and learning how to do a really, really good Maradona turn and breaking it down and making it perfect. And so we got, we got you and your teammates and all the other kids in the club to be very good dribblers, you know. And, but the problem is that, that they were too head, head down, that, you know, it was... It was when they were dribbling, they weren't seeing opportunities off of the ball. They weren't recognizing, you know, what was happening in terms of macro vision. Mm-hmm. They had micro vision. You know, they were seeing, you know, just the area around them, their immediate opponent, but they weren't seeing the big picture. And so maybe they were picking the wrong move to open up a penetrating pass to a teammate. Well, what the Ghanaian situation showed me is that that we could now make this a team game because we had a player with the ball carrier who's showing for wall passes, who's making overlaps, who's, you know, who's setting things up for takeovers and double plays, you know. And, and so, you know, what we've got now is we've got the ideal scenario to optimize wall passing, overlaps, takeovers, double passes. And, uh, you know, because that involves just two players, you know, in that next level of tactical thinking. But here's the beauty about it. As we got more and more into two-on-two, we realized that because the, the arena was so crowded, because we would often have 20, 30 bodies in small spaces, you know, just like the Ghanaians, not actually to the same degree as the Ghanaians, but we would have so many players in small spaces um, that we realized that this bats in a cave, this crowded scenario develops a type of radar that transfers beautifully into the area in and around the penalty area in the outdoor game where things get tight and the other teams park in the bus and, you know, you've got all of these talented, deceptive dribblers and goal scorers, which is in the end what our club became known for. Then other teams used to just park the bus and look to bang the ball long to their fast breakaway player and see if they could steal a game from us. And it's still done to this day in the EPL. You know, teams park the bus and, you know, they look for that long outlet and can they score one against Liverpool, which changes the game, you know, and then they can pack it in and see if they can hold on to that one goal lead. Well, 
what what this did for for my players is it made our players this this unique group that was able to either do things individually, beat players on their own and score a great goal, but also combine in the tightest circumstances, you know, with that wall pass, with that overlap, you know, with that takeover play in order to completely wrong for the, you know, the two players that they're playing against. And that was when the, the sun really came out for my teams in terms of statistical success, you know, and we went from being you know, second and third in the State Cup to winning most of the ages in the state of Kansas. And we went to winning multiple national indoor championships. I mean, you know, the club is easily in double figures for winning multiple national indoor championships, you know, during the decade of the 90s. You know, and so these players, and, and then of course, so many of them went on and played pro. It's just incredible professional success. A whole bunch of them, you know, went on and played for their national teams. Uh, and, you know, we had this unbelievable success that continued all the way through as hopefully it does, you know, when you do the right thing as a, as a mentor, as a teacher. Even one of them went on to become a renowned podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> the ugliest one. <laughs> so, uh, OK, so 2v2s, it, 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 let's, let's define those a little bit. I think for those that are, that are listening, um, you know, I think they've gotten somewhat of a picture through, through, the, through the, your story about Ghana and looking in the field and seeing all of those players in a penalty box working. But Philippe, can you describe 2v2s from, from a physical perspective? What does it look like? What does it sound like? How long, are, you know, how long do the kids play against each other? That kind of thing. How do we set it up? What's the structure? Well, um, in our indoor facility, you know, our field is in a perfect size for that um, because it will keep everything tight. Um, and with all the games happening at the same time, you know, you're playing with your teammate against two other kids and the other game is going on. So you're maybe trying to find a penetrating pass and it's not only your two defenders, you have all other kids running across the field. So you got to be really precise on that. And also we don't use as... Andy said we don't use bibs or anything so you gotta actually look up and see like whoever you're playing with it's not just look glance to a caller you gotta see who you're playing with you gotta communicate you gotta know where uh, your teammate is and you gotta make your teammate know where you are so um, just having everybody uh, going at the same time develops that radar that Andy talked about and you know make kids uh, see the field in a different way because it's it's really hard to see the field and to see all these options, you know, why you have a ball on your feet, why you have a defender putting pressure on you, why there's a lot of things going on at the same time. You really got to focus, you know, and you develop that radar, that vision, that it's it's fantastic. I remember growing up, uh, I think I shared that before, I used to play in school, you know, with... 10 kids on each side on a small futsal field. So we had that. We had that, you know, super crowded space that we we would play in, but it was one ball. It was two teams not, against not each other. enough. Yeah, so yeah. Not, not... You developed that, that radar because you see all those kids and we didn't have bibs or anything so but it's it, it's qu not quite the same because you don't get the ball as much so you don't get as much repetition and it's easy to hide because you have 10 teammates you lose the ball and honestly that's what I did I lost the ball I would stand because I hated defending yeah. you know and I just let you know my teammates do the dirty work and then when I got the ball I would try to play again you can do that if you're playing 2v2 because yep. you're going to get punished for and, sure. And in, in 2v2s, right? So like we'll, we'll have like four-minute round or so and Philippe and I will be teammates and we'll play against Andy and Andy's teammate, right? And, and it's 2v2. And, um, and there's a score system that we use to, to keep track of it and to provide incentive for the kids. And the score system is, 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 is as simple as if I score and put the ball in the back of the net, I get a plus one. If the person I'm responsible for, marking, let's say Andy, scores, I get a minus one. So if I score and Andy scores, I'm sat even at this point. But then maybe late in the round, I pass it to Philippe. Philippe puts it in the back of the net. I've got an assist. So I go plus one again. And the final score being two to one, so my team won, I get another plus one. So I finish that round plus two. Whereas Andy, who was marking me, he scored, I scored, right? So he's even on that. Team lost, so he's minus one. And we keep track of those scores every single round. Uh, I, for Andy, he puts the scores in a notebook. For me, I put them on a whiteboard next to the field. Um, and the kids have a final tally at the end of 10 rounds or 12 rounds that they finished, you know, plus 20 or minus 20. Um, and it becomes, it becomes an objective 
um, uh, identifier as to how they did that day, but more more importantly, more specifically, is how do they trend? Are they improving? Are their scores getting better week after week, session after session? Or are they going down, right? And, or are they plateauing? Um, and it provides objective feedback for the kids. And that's uh, been really effective. And for also us. motivates the kids because ideally the kids will be competitive and they will you know, try to win, try to be, have their name in the top of the, your whiteboard or Andy's um, sheet. And they just, they just want to win. So they want work hard and see their score and see that, you know, um, what they're doing, it's being rewarded, right? So they sure. want to win. So sure. it creates that competitive environment that it's essential as well. Perhaps so one of the things, let me, let me do this for a second, Andy. Uh, perhaps one of the things that I most respect about you, Andy, um, is, is your... Men's good looks? No, 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 no not that. Uh, <laughs> it is the size of your nose, though. Uh, no, perhaps one of the things I, I respect most about you is, is, is your, your um, obsessive nature about efficiency and looking to find efficiencies and create better efficiencies. And, and it's, I think it's that, 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 that personality that you have to, to look for greater efficiencies that creates the best environments and cultures for, for players to develop and improve. And for example, uh, 2v2s, using 2v2s as examples, is you as, as a coach always made us play with certain conditions, right? It's almost as though, as though you stepped back from the 2v2 in that moment and thought about the wider 11v11 game and what, what conditions do I want players to become intuitive with? And an example would be every time I, when I got the ball, if I, if I went to shoot it, that I would follow and frame the goal, right? My shot in case there was a rebound. Or every time I played the ball to a teammate, I would then make an immediate five-yard sprint in a direction, right, to create space for myself to show. Or every time I was defending somebody, they would make a run to go goal side of me, and the condition was I had to go to follow them. And it made in us as players intuitive to where when we left practice 2v2 and we went and played the full game, those 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 actions were something that we did without thinking, um, and and so can you talk about conditions for a moment and the importance of, um, or maybe even elaborate a little bit in terms of some of the conditions that you make your players follow within two v two. Does this make sense? It makes total sense. And the the three key words: uh, um, easy to hide, and. One of the greatest frustrations for me as a coach, and I think this is shared by the vast majority of coaches at least, if not every coach, is that you'll have a player that is tremendously offensively gifted for whatever reason. Uh, you know, might have you know, played around with the ball so much more than the other players that he's got fantastic foot skills. And Ryan Kaufman from your team would spring to mind. Um, but uh, they don't have the intensity the work ethic and once again ryan kaufman would spring to mind you know and and so you know we actually created the ryan kaufman rule which was make it take it because ryan was so good that you know he didn't have to defend because he could score on virtually every attack so at times he would let the other player score so that he could get the ball back and he could take a bit of a break you know, and he'd go down and score again and, you know, and he'd just do enough on the defensive side of the ball, on the dirty side of the ball to get by. And he'd end up winning the round by, you know, three or four goals because, you know, he was that gifted on the offensive side of the ball that with a ball at his feet, it was almost a guarantee he'd score. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, what, what we've done in, in this conditioned atmosphere where you, you have to shoot and follow your shot, frame the goal in case there's a rebound, is if Ryan didn't do the hard work of following his shot in case there was a rebound, the goal didn't count. Yeah. So instantly, all his hard work, in Ryan's case, 50% work, um, he's going to kill me for this. When he I think this. he listens, actually. He did, yeah, he's going to love this, actually, because, <laughs> you know, we've still got a great relationship to this, to this day. Uh, and he, he's always said to me, you know, this clip from Amazon, you got to watch this, you got to watch this. And, and so, you know, and uh, he knew he was lazy, but he could get away with it because he was so fantastic so on the ball. He played D1, yeah. you know, and, and scored lots of goals. And, you know, he was just, a, you know, a stud of a player. And, uh, and so, um, but how do you teach kids responsibility? Well, you know, you have to make them work, you know. And so 
you know, it's one of the things that I think this society falls down on is, you know, we want our kids to be creative and we, we don't make them blue collar enough. We don't teach them to roll their sleeves up and get down and dirty and fight and battle and scrap, you know, and make something fantastic happen just with your attitude and your effort. And so all of these conditions that, that, that we made up, and we tried many that didn't work, but all of the ones that we made up and kept ended up helping our players be hard workers, you know, doing the right things automatically in terms of framing the goal, following their shot. And, you know, we gave a goal to, remember this, we gave a goal to uh, a player that would get goal side of the defender. So all you had to do to score was get goal side of your defender. So it became a battle just to get goal side of the defender and try and get behind the defender. So our defenders were always backing off and keeping the, the whole of the play in front of them, which made us almost impossible to score against mm-hmm. when it came to the big it's, game. It's actually my, that's my favorite condition to use in 2v2s. I remember the 98-99 boys that I coached for a long time. They're all seniors in college now. Um, uh, but when I first started introducing 2v2s to them, I did it out of necessity because we were getting beaten in games against teams that weren't nearly as good of us because boy, my boys were terrible at ball watching. Right. I think that's somewhat of a symptom of some of our kids is we are so individual in play when they're young that they don't think outside of, oh, let's watch my teammate and see what awesome skill he's going to pull off now. Right. And so 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 they weren't they were just ball watching and defensively they weren't tracking runners. And so when we did 2v2 and it became all he has to do is get goal side of you. And if he gets goal side of you, it's a goal. Then my boys had to spend months totally focused more so than anything else on tracking their runner and that improved immediately and then and then it became intuitive and then it was no longer a problem for us right and and so that's i think that's one of the the giant benefits of having these conditions within our sessions um and and 2v2 you always ratcheted up as soon as we got comfortable as soon as we we had it figured out and we knew how to play 2v2s from a tactical perspective and technically we were we were in our comfort zone as soon as that then you added another condition in another condition that was paramount to us being successful in the game long term that made it so much more difficult for us and put us out of our comfort zone. And that, I think, was a, that's a key element to 2v2s. And why, um, for those listening that don't know, literally two v, we do 1v1s and 2v2s almost all of every practice from age 6 until age 18, right? We don't do 2v2s until they get a little bit older, but it's one of those twos almost every practice all the way through. And it works because we continue to ratchet it up by adding conditions. So it's not the same forever, um, uh, if that makes sense. So. I have a, a, star, a funny story to share. So um, two years ago, I was, no, not two, I'm getting old. Three years ago, I was in college and I was getting ready for my senior year. It was the first time that I, that I stayed in the US uh, for the summer. You know, you, you, I used to like going back to Brazil, stay on the beach and just hang out with my friends. That I summer was, yeah, that <laughs> summer was my summer break here. Uh, and I was like, it's my last year of college. I'm going to stay here so I can stay in shape, not suffer as much in the preseason like I used to, and, you know, and get ready for my last season. So Kyle, um, who works with us, played for Andy as well. Um, he was coaching uh, a 2001, 2000 team. So they were about 16 years old at the time. And I would train with them. And their practice was mainly 2v2s. And I had never done 2v2s before. And, you know, at In that the time, structure, the way that we do yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was, I had coached 2v2, but I hadn't played a 2v2. So um, I started training with them. And the f- first day, right away, the condition he gave was like, you have one touch to control the ball. Your second touch needs to be a skew, a pass, or a shot. So, you know, I, I didn't play super organized soccer until I was uh, older, you know, and usually when our restrictions were like two touches and, you know, move the ball fast. But like on the 2v2, all I wanted to do, and, you know, I was in my prime of my shape, I could beat all those kids. They were 16. They were not ready yet, you know. So, but I would control the ball and take an extra touch, you know, and Kai would say, turn over. I'm like, What? And then turnover, turnover. And I, I, know I wasn't used to it because sometimes I would receive the ball and I would have yards of space in front of me and I would just take an, an extra touch instead of doing a scissor without anybody so I could dribble because you get a limited touches after you do a skill. So, like, 
it made it uncomfortable for me. It made it challenge for me because I was going against kids that were way younger than I, you know, and was weren't fully mature, and that gave me a challenge, you know. Uh, and then I started dominating the 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 restriction, and then he all, would always come with another one, and he would give me uh, certain restrictions, so you know, to make it more fair against the kids. And it was great, and I thought it was a unbelievable practice because. Uh, it was really hard physically because you don't stop for four minutes. You're just going all the time, 100 miles an hour. You don't get any break. You don't stop. And the way that Caio did it was like, if Philippe loses a round, we're done. We can scrimmage. <laughs> so he, he made me like, you got to beat them. And obviously, these 16-year-old kids that, you know, I'm a coach in the club, you know, they, they want to beat me so bad. And with my pride, I'm like, I'm not letting these kids beat me. <laughs> so, like, we would go, like, uh, up to 10 rounds, and I would be, like, dying, you know, pushing myself so hard to, to make it, you know, to, to, to win, to keep winning. And then I would end up not losing. But, well, yeah. You bring up one up. touch, two touch, fake a move within two, which yeah. was a condition that we had from literally babies, I think, playing for you, something that we did all the time. And, and it, 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 it makes intuitive – uh, players that are deceptive, that, that their speed of play is fast, right? They either shoot right away, they pass right away, or they do some do some type of fake deceptive movement right away and then carry the ball. And, and so it increased the speed of play, which is typically what coaches do when they say you're limited to two touch. We want to improve our speed of play. You can't take three touches, but that takes away the ability to dribble and to be creative off the dribble. And so by doing it one touch, two touch, or a fake move within two, it increases the speed of play. But it, it, it's that's a good segue to something that I wanted to, to, to bring up. So Andy... My favorite Legends team of all time wasn't my own. It was the 8182s, right? This is the group that had... Can, can, can you hold this thought? Yeah. Because, you know, I think um, the audience needs to understand that the one-touch, two-touch, fake a move within two touches Good. a little bit better. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's still a little bit hazy from the way that we've described it. And this is where you are only allowed to one or two-touch a pass or a shot. You can't touch it, touch it again, and then shoot, and then shoot or pass. Right? And, but if you cannot one or two touch a pass or shot because the timing is not right, then you have to begin your move at the very latest on your second touch. Yep. And, and these are the conditions that we played by, and it makes the kids think ahead have a plan, have a clear objective in their mind before they receive the ball. They've got to scan and plan and decide whether they can put the ball in the net. That's the first option. Sure. Don't do a move if you can put the ball in the net. You know, so first, put the ball in the net. And if you can do it first touch, do it first touch. You know, if you need to take a touch because the ball is a little bit too high or it's coming at an awkward angle, you're allowed that, but that's as far as it goes. You know, you get one quick touch and then you have to bury the ball in the net. But if you can't do that, now you need to make a choice between whether you're going to pass and whether you're going to take somebody on. And the acid test there is, what's the next result if you pass the ball? Do we have a scoring opportunity? Mm -hmm. If the next result is we have a scoring opportunity with the pass, by all means, give the pass. But if I'm going to go backwards and, and actually go negative... All right, then I've got to be looking to do a move, create the space and bury the ball in the back of the net because we don't want to train our players to go negative. We want to train our players to go positive all the time, you know, relentlessly forward or you know, no retreat. That's the mantra. And so what we've got to do is we've got to understand these conditions and how important it is not to you know, uh, get them into one mode only. You know, one mode only is an enemy. It's awful. It's one touch to passing, yeah, two touch passing. Not only is it predictable, but it takes away the creative other options. And the way that this game is played, there's always creative other options. So you don't want to say to your players, you've got to play one touch only. You've got to play two touch only. You literally have to say to them, play one touch, two touch, fake a move than two. You know, and every now and again, I don't know if you remember this, I would turn up the heat and I'd say... Okay, no two touch now. It's it's one touch or fake a move on your first touch. Yep. 
you know, and it would be funny watching players that were good at one touch, two touch, fake a move within two, failing, falling over, messing up because they had to think so much quicker and so much further ahead, you know, and play everything one touch or do a move on the first touch, yeah. you know, and so, so, you know, we would switch it up and it, I didn't keep it there permanently because that's not unrealistic, that's, that's unrealistic at the sure. highest level. But it would be an extra level of play that would really challenge you guys. And some kids had the ability to kind of master that, you know, and play that, you know, one touch and fake a move on the first touch, yep. you know. And so, so that, and that was the challenge is to always keep you guys on your toes as much as possible and have you play faster, you know. And, you know, you've got to be on that edge of chaos, that into that, that complex zone that, builds ability the minute you go too far over into too much chaos too much complexity and everything is falling apart it's bad coaching yeah you know we've actually do too much but if we're if you're very comfortable playing one touch two touch fake a move within two let's play some one touch you know and you've got to do your fake a move on the first touch you know and so that will get you out of your comfort zone yep. so and maybe we do one round on one round off if you're that good you know that that we actually challenge you to play that little bit faster that little bit quicker yeah, and, and um, that's a really good point. I think oftentimes we can start talking shop using vernacular that doesn't translate well. Um, what is vernacular? Context. Yeah, yeah um, uh, exactly. <laughs> and what did you ask? Well, so I, what I, I was going to transition because I wanted to talk about the 81-82s for a moment oh, okay. on two specific uh, fronts. And so um, Andy trained – so I was an 83, and my team was an 83-84, um, and we trained with the 81-82, so the team that was two years older than us. So when we were U13, U14, we, tra- we started training with them entirely and trained all the way until they graduated from high school, so up through U16. Uh, my team always trained with them. We didn't compete against them very often. Typically, we would be playing 1v1s or 2v2s on the same small field, goals 20 yards apart or so, that they were doing 1v1s or 2v2s on that field. And so, but you know, we looked up to these guys. These guys were the, the these were these guys were men while we were still boys and they could play. They were good. Um, so I, I want to talk about them in a little bit greater detail here in a moment, but I want to ask, was it Ghana and seeing so many players in that tight space? Is that, because that's around the time that you started training uh, my team and that team together, was that the impetus impetus for you deciding to have two teams train together, or had you done that previous? Yeah, you know, I was in a situation where um, I was running the National Indoor Soccer Championship, I was running the Super Clubs National Championship, both of which have gone away because the growth of futsal and the, you know, and the U.S. club soccer and you know the alternative national championships that exist today, and uh, and so and I only started those championships because I wanted you guys to be able to play, you know, in a higher level of competition against better competition from other states, um, and so so um, the. Uh, what was the question again? Uh, was it seeing so many players on the field for Ghana doing 2v2s? Was that why you put us together to create more chaos? Absolutely. And, and I digress. But after watching Ghana and seeing how incredible they were because they were playing in a crowd, I realized that training teams separately didn't create enough chaos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, the environment just wasn't right for creating the absolute brilliant, you know, mastermind, supercomputer, fast-thinking, incredibly skillful soccer player. If I only had, you know, let's say I had a full roster, 18 players on the roster, you know, well, on any given day, there might be four or five of them that didn't make it to practice because they had other things, that they, sure. school projects, whatever, homework, you know. And, and so, you know, what... I realized is that I could guarantee that I could get 24, 28 players every practice if we combine practices. And we could get the numbers to recreate the Ghana situation, which would, of course, build that bats in a cave radar, that, that extra ability to handle the chaos and the complexity. And if you watch Leo Messi, you know, he's the only guy that consistently can handle incredible chaos complexity around an opponent's penalty error on the Barcelona team. You know, he gets into those tight circumstances and he seems unfazed by it. He's almost better. It, it, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's weird how he, he suddenly comes into his own when it gets really tight and really fast and really crowded, you know, and you, just, you think there's absolutely no way through. All of a sudden, he, he finds a way. 
That, and, and that's a perfect segue as well to the next thing I wanted to mention about the 8182s is uh, they, um, I, if my memory serves, they went to the USYSA Nationals, na- National Championship with a, where there's four regions, right? Four teams there, the final four of, of, of the age group. They went three times. They finished first, second, and third over three different trips. And bear right? in mind, this was when there was no competing national Correct. championships. There was no so ECNL. There was no There's GA, like six GA, these GA. days, yep. and you don't know who's the best team in the nation because there's so many options and every one of these organizations is claiming that their championship is the best championship to win. This is, yeah, this is the only one. And, and Andy, I, I, you coached them up until they were U18. So they're U19 and U20 year. You didn't go with them to nationals because they, at that point, they were in college coming back during the summer. And I think Chris Klein, now the general manager of um, the LA Galaxy, formerly U.S. men's national team and Kansas City Wizards, actually coached them. Um, but I've heard you tell the story where uh, it was their U20 year, so their sophomore year in college, they won nationals. Um, and uh, they thrashed the team, maybe from Southern California. They scored nine goals against them. I mean, just absolutely just played them off the park. Um, and you tell a story. Maybe they played. A a club in Florida, a well-known club called Blackwatch. And I don't know the director's name, but somebody that you knew, you ran into him a few months later. And, and if I remember right, he explained to you that they were just so good in tight spaces. And I, I think you, at least when you told me the story, said something along the lines of, whenever we constricted the space and double teamed or really crowded areas on the pitch that they seem to be exploiting, they seem to get better. And I mean, there's no doubt that that it translates directly to the 2v2 environment that, that the 8182s trained with their entire high school career twice a week. Right, right. And it, whenever you challenge these guys, you know, and they have to play tighter and faster, it, this is the thing. This, the best way of putting it is, you know, these kids had trained and played not just in a hot kitchen, not just over the stove. They'd been literally dancing on the hot plate, mm-hmm. you know, all their lives. And so whenever things got really tight and really fast, they grew. You know, this was their wheelhouse. Yeah. You know, don't come into my house. This is, you know, so, you know, when other, other teams were, you know, really, you know, kicking and, and pushing and shoving and, you know, our guys were so tough because everything we did was physical, you know, and just, just incredibly difficult circumstances develops incredibly strong people and players, you know, and, and, and that's absolutely crucial. Yeah. Well, uh, guys, this was a, another good episode. I really enjoyed your energy and enthusiasm. Can, can I, Is there something you want to add? Well, I want to, I want to say that, you know, it, it sounds as though we were doing anything we could to win and, and yes, winning is nice, but we, we were in the final four at Disney's wide or sports with this team, the 81, 82 team, and it's a good story because uh, I play equal playing time. So this team got to the final four playing strictly equal playing time through Kansas State Cup, USYSA Region 2 Regionals, you know, and we're playing in the final four at Disney's Wide World of Sports. And before the tournament began, I had a meeting the night before the first game and I said, guys, you know, we've been together all this time. We're under 17. You know, if we win this tournament, then all you guys are going to get college scholarships. And they all did anyway. And I knew that was going to happen at this point in time anyway. And uh, I said, but so what we're going to do is we, we're going to win this. And in order to win this, I'm going to throw out of the window my equal playing time philosophy. So for the first time ever, I'm just going to pick the 11 studs that can get the job done. And Ryan Barber at the time was the captain of the Canadian under 20 national team, you know? And so, you know, and, and this is really interesting because um, the parents and the players had bought into equal playing time and just being all completely fairly treated in terms of playing time that they did everything but use the F word against me. You know, they, they were angry, you know, Barney, you know, you're letting us down, you know, and, you know, and I kept a straight face for a while and then I just burst out laughing because it was a total sprag, you know, and, and I did it with a reason though, not just to have fun with them and, and to sprag them and to punk them. I did it because I wanted them to go out the next day with a, an elevated vision of what it means to be a team. 
mm. knowing that they were going to rotate evenly. And I, I had all the rotations set up. So after they had abused me and I said that was just a joke, I actually had all the rotations set up in my hand. And I said, this is how we're going to do it for the first three games. You know, and here's the interesting thing. Um, that year, Braddock Road, good, good uh, team out of uh, Virginia with a, with a forward called Abe Marrero won the national championship. Played in the MLS. Yeah, he played for Dallas in yeah. the MLS. Scored a lot of goals. And uh, Abe was one of these guys that, that could always score against us unless we put one player on him. And that player was Ryan Barber, the under-20 Canadian national team captain. And, you know, we took Ryan out of the game to give another player the opportunity to play equal playing time. And it was then that Abe scored the one goal that beat us in the, the round play that stopped us going to the final. You know, because Ryan wasn't in. And Ryan, he never scored against Ryan. We played them every year in a number of tournaments and at the National Indoor Championship finals. And he never scored when Ryan Barber was on him because Barber was absolutely a monster. You know, and... And, uh, but that equal playing time philosophy taught these, th these kids something about life, you know, and that is that it's not about what you take away from the situation. It's not who has the biggest, fastest car or the nicest house. It's about what you give to the situation. So all of those players have remained firm friends to this day. They all love each other. We had always no turnover on that team, you know, because these kids and these families gave and gave and gave to each other and supported each other through good times and bad, you know. And so eventually they got what they deserve with Chris Klein playing unequal playing time at under 20. And there's a point when that's okay, yeah. you know. And Chris did the right thing, I'd say. You know, these kids are college players, you know, so they're beyond the equal playing time side of things. And, and so they got their just desserts and they won a national championship at under 20. But we should use this game not just to win. And if we do win, it shouldn't be because we cheated one of our players out of the opportunity to learn and develop. Yep. And that's really important. Because that's what it's about. Exactly. Um, good. Well, guys, thanks again. Great, uh, great episode. For those of you guys at home, um, if you, so we talked about 2v2s quite a bit. We have, I mean, Andy's book, we'd be happy to share with you. All you have to do is reach out to us on any of our social handles or email us. Um, and in that book, it describes 2v2s and exactly what it looks like. It describes the various conditions that we might use. It has the matrices that we use to ensure that the players are matched up with a different player every, every round to make it as efficient um, and a quality of session. As, as, as we can. So please reach out if you'd like us to share those with you. We'll, we'll, we'll give you two books. Yeah, you know, Legends, second book as well. for life Legends for Life as well as Training Soccer training Legends. Soccer Legends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last bit is these t-shirts. You, surely you want to rock a coaching inside the box t-shirt um, as you uh, go on your shopping trips uh, these days. So just share. Share any of our videos uh, that we have up on one of our socials. If you share it, we'll put your name in the hat. And as many T-shirts as I can convince my wife to make, so I don't know, a handful of them probably. Talk, uh, talking we'll of hats, away. if I do another six, you know, of these episodes, can I get, a, a, you know, a coaching inside the box hat? Maybe? You want a cap? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, you know, <laughs> or a sombrero. I mean, I'm just, I'm happy to get anything because you're so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Pot calling the kettle back. <laughs> All right, very good. Thanks, guys, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Thank guys. you, Andrew.